Lori and I have spent quite a bit of time uh, over the last few weeks looking at old pictures and videos that we have done, and it really is remarkable all the people that have spent some time here with us uh, through these years and the lives that have been changed uh, because of your ministry here. So I want to thank you for letting me be a part of it. Uh, one of the most significant things that's happened in my whole lifetime. Next to Lori and my kids. Ditto. Come celebrate on Friday night. Not going to be any long faces and grumpy and gripey people. So if you're going to grump and gripe, please stay at home. <laughs> we're coming here to celebrate, and we're going to celebrate big time. Please be a part of it. Okay, we are jumping into Revelation once again. Before we do that, I want to read something to you. This is from Proverbs I don't know how much you know about Proverbs, but Proverbs supposedly are, are wisdom sayings and, and wise counsel and guidance that Solomon wrote primarily to teach to his children. And in this, in chapter 7, he gives a warning. Well, first of all, he says this, he says, Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call understanding your intimate friend. That they may keep you from an adulteress. And picking up on verse 7, And I saw among the naive, I discerned among the youths, a young man lacking sense, passing through the street near her corner. And he takes the way to her house. And in the twilight, in the evening, in the middle of the night, and in the darkness, and behold, a woman comes to meet him dressed as a harlot and cunning of heart. She is boisterous and rebellious, and her feet do not remain at home. She is now in the street, now in the squares, and lurks by every corner. So she seizes him and kisses him. And with a brazen face, she says to him, I was due to offer peace offerings today. I've paid my vows. Therefore, I have come out to meet you, to seek your presence earnestly, and I have found you. I have spread my couch with coverings and with colored linens from Egypt. I am sprinkling my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us drink our fill of love until morning. Let us delight ourselves with caresses. For the man is not at home, he is not gone on a long journey, he has taken a bag of money with him, a full moon he will, uh, at full moon he will come home. With her many persuasions, with her many persuasions, she entices him with her flattering lips, she seduces him, suddenly he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter, or as one in fetters to the discipline of a fool, until an arrow pierces through his liver, and as a bird hastens to the snare, so he does not know that it will cost him his life. Now therefore, my sons, listen to me, and pay attention to the words of my mouth. 
Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths, for many are the victims she has cast down, and numerous are all her slain. Her house is the way of Sheol, descending to the chambers of death. Now, you may be wondering why I read that, but when we begin to read in Revelation, uh, perhaps you will. Chapter 17. And one of the angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I shall show you the judgment of the great harlot, who I would rather call the seductress, who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality, and those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality, And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and jewels, having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and of unclean things of her immorality. And upon her forehead a name was written, a mystery, Babylon the great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered greatly. And the angel said to me, why do you wonder? I tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. The beast that you saw was, is not, and is about to come up out of the abyss And to go to destruction. And those who dwell on the earth will wonder whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. When they see the beast and he was and is not and will come. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits and they are seven kings. Five have fallen. One is the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must remain a little while. And the beast, which, was, uh, which is not, is himself also an eighth, and is one of the seven, and he goes to destruction. And the ten horns, which you saw, are ten kings who have not received a kingdom, and they receive authority as kings with a beast for one hour. These have one purpose, and they give their power and authority to the beast. These will wage war against the lamb, and the lamb will overcome them, because he is Lord of lords and king of kings. And those who are with him are the called, the chosen, uh, and the faithful. I'm going to stop there. And, and I just want to say this before I say anything else. Uh, because we have really focused on judgment. God's judgment coming upon this, this wicked and evil world at a time... Uh, In the very future, it could be tomorrow, it could be next year, it could be 10,000 years ago uh, from now, it could be 20 million years from now. No one knows. And there's there's a reason for that. God has purposely clothed these things in mystery. Jesus did it. You will not know the day that I'm coming. 
I will come like a thief in the night. The important thing that we glean from it is that time has not come, but that time will in fact come. And in that day, God will set everything right. Everything will be made right. There are scriptures that tell us, Paul tells us in Romans, that we all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Everyone will. But I want to remind you of something this morning. That that will be very different for believers than it will be for unbelievers. Unbelievers will be judged severely, finally, eternally. Believers, on the other hand, they will be rewarded according to what they have done for God with the good life that he has given them. I don't think for a minute that hell is going to be the same thing for absolutely everybody. I don't believe that the hell that, that uh, an unbeliever that never in their whole lifetime reads the Bible, hears about Jesus, hears the gospel, will be the same thing as it will be for those who have had those benefits and they have actively chosen to reject Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. There's not a lot of ground in Scripture for uh, understanding some things like this, except there is one thing that Jesus says when he was talking with Pilate. And he tells him that those who brought him to him, have, their sin is greater than his is. And if sin is different, if, if there are different degrees of sin, then God's judgment must necessarily be different. Let me just remind you of this. It will not at all be pleasant for anyone by any stretch of the imagination. Except those who know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. It will be a day of great fulfillment. A day, uh, uh, the day that the, the, the all semblance of doubt that you and I might have will be gone forever. We will never wonder again about any of this stuff. We will know that it is reality. And we will never question any of it anymore. I don't know about you, but I really look forward to that day. I can always remember, you know, I had this heart procedure just recently. And, you know, there were some people that talked to me a few days before that. were going, gosh, aren't you nervous? Wouldn't you really be, I'd be a nervous wreck if you, you know, you know this, that, and the other. And. Uh, and all of that. And I can honestly tell you that that morning, maybe the day before, I was a little bit honorary. Lori might tell you that. Uh, but when it came right down to it, I was just as calm as I could be. And part of it, I was remembering my brother, Doug Coxwell. He had open heart surgery many years ago. And the last thing he said to me, he said to Keith, he said, don't worry. He said, this is a win-win situation for me. He said, I'm going to be blessed regardless of what the outcome is. 
either I'm going to go home to be with Jesus or I get to stay here and spend more time with my dear wife, Judy. Thanks, Doug. I'll never forget it. I hope. Okay, so verse 1. Notice here one of the seven angels. This is one of those seven angels who had brought forth those bowls of wrath that we've just studied. So we're reading this, I'm thinking, you know what? It seems as though the, the work of an angel is never done. It's like they never get a break. They have a purpose in their existence. And that purpose is to serve God in whatever capacity he calls them to whenever it is, how often it is. And how often do you, I get, you and I get a little upset when our schedule gets thrown out of whack a little bit. You know, I'm planning on doing this, but something else comes up, and now I can't do that. I was going to do it, and now I'm going to have to do it later, and, you know, this, that, and the other. Uh, angels always. This is the purpose of their whole existence, is to do God's bidding whenever he calls them to do it, and there's a sense in which you and I are called in the same manner. We need to get over ourselves, period. Be open and willing to be used by God anytime, any moment to do anything he calls us to do. I challenge you this morning to get out of this mindset. I could never do that. But the truth is there are lots of things you could never do. The reality is this, is God can do whatever he wants to do, whenever he wants to do it, with whomever he wishes to utilize in that. He comes and he speaks to John. And he says to him, come. I will show you. So he's going to show John another vision. Just vision after vision after vision. These are the things that John has been seeing. Some of them very terrifying. Some of them very comforting. I will show you the judgment of the great harlot, or as I said before, I think uh, seductress would be probably a better word. The one who sits on many waters. Now, one of these things I've learned from Revelation, and I started learning this before, but as we've been in this more and more, I, I, I just see this. Allow the book to interpret itself. Very often the answers to questions about what does this symbolize and what does that symbolize is right here in the book itself. If we just take the time to look. Sometimes it's easier just to start speculating about this. Well, maybe this is this and maybe that is that. And the next thing you know it, someone's heard that and they're saying, so on and so said that. Now, I think they're, you know, they, they obviously have an inroad to God, so it must be gospel. So now they start telling other people that. And next thing you know, it appears in teaching here, there, and yonder that such and such is, in fact, this. Or such and such is, in fact, that. When, in, when, when reality is there's no biblical basis for coming to such conclusions. We are told in verse 15 of this same chapter what these waters are that she's sitting on. 
And it's not what anybody would conclude. It doesn't sound like water in the conventional sense in any way, shape, or form. But what does it say? It's, he said to me, the waters which you saw, where the harlot sits, are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. They're people. They're people that she seduced. They are people of the world. And we talk about how the church is universal in its outreach, that, you know, all peoples and all nations and all tongues, the gospel goes to. And we've seen the picture of this in the heavenly throne room, that, 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 that when the, the congregation, the heavenly congregation is gathered together, it is representative of all the nations and peoples of the world. No one's excluded. No people groups excluded. The church universal. And see, something we've seen here too is there's, there's very often an, an antithesis of things. This is the antithesis of the church. It's the world under the influence of the evil and wicked one, because we see this, that the harlot, in a sense, that Satan himself is the harlot. That all of these are just this various pictures, these things that we've seen. The dragon and, and the beast that came out of the sea and the beast that came out of the earth. That they're all ultimately are symbolisms of the one that we know as the evil one, the wicked one, Satan, Lucifer, the devil. And how he's had this influence upon the peoples of the world and has seduced them with his lies just as he did Eve and Adam. The judgment time of the great harlot is coming. With whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality. The same kings that in verse 14 of chapter 16 for they are the spirits of demons performing signs that go to the kings of the whole earth to do what? To gather them together for the war of the great day of God, the Almighty. The kings of the earth committed acts of immorality. Those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine. Of her immorality. Have you ever thought of sin as an infectious disease? The seed of which is in every person.
one sin, how often does one sin lead to another sin, which leads to another and another and another and another and another. It has this multiplying effect. We've seen it happen over and over again. We know that alcohol can have a really bad influence on people. For a lot of reasons, and one of those is this, is that when we've had too much to drink, very often we say things that we wish we could take back later. We do things we wish we could take back. I would imagine sometimes it says the Lord looks down upon the earth and he sees the people here drunk with sin. Just more and more and more and more. That in part is due to the influence upon the devil in this world. It's all also because of the seed of sin that is in every one of us. So easy to blame everything on other people. We're good at it. Really good at it. And that's true for all of us. Maybe to varying degrees. But true for us all. They say that to, for recovering alcoholics, one of the first things that they have to do is acknowledge that they are an alcoholic. Do you think not possibly the same thing that apply for sinners? That the first and foremost thing that we must do to be on the road to recover from the, the consequences and the influence and the drunkenness of sin is to admit that we're sinners. That we have a problem. And we're addicted to it. I mean, how many times have you, maybe, I'm sure that you all have these besetting sins. In other words, they're sins that you, you know you've struggled with uh, as, as a believer. And, and every now and then you get to the point where you arrogantly believe that you're done with that one. And the next thing you know, it raises its ugly head. And maybe in a, in a, in a deeper, more profound way than it ever has and you're going. Uh-oh. There's something about sexual sin. Now let's face it, the culture that we live in today, sexual sin is not the idea of the two things being related is almost foreign to the culture 
and the world around us. Sexual sin today has got to be understood to be just the normal function of people. This culture, when you and I look out upon it, we should be able to see a lot of things. And one of those is this, is the seductress here? Is the seductress drawing people away? Blinding them to, to, to their own addictions? Teaching one of my classes... I decided, by the way, I'm not going to do it again after this semester. And I'll be 66 this week. And I don't have the stamina that I used to have. I, you know, I look back on the years, and I don't know how I've managed to keep up. Lori, and I, she's still doing it. But keeping up the pace that we do. And that's part of the reason. But another part of the reason is this. The culture you always feel like you're drowning. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. We know that homosexuality has always been an issue. Started way back in the Bible. You need to understand that. Been around for a very long time. We also know that the Bible calls it, God calls it a sin, right? But it's not the only thing that He calls a sin. There are lots of things that are sins. It just happens to be one of them. And the Bible's very clear about it. First day of class this semester, there's a guy that comes in who's desperately trying to be a woman. Doing everything he possibly can to be woman-like. So I start going through the role, and I call his name. And he looks at me and he says, I identify with Nellie. Kids in the back row are laughing at him. My heart broke. This is the world. As the world is, is the seductress active? You betcha. Are people drunk on sin? You betcha. Are people blinded by it? You betcha. It gets harder and harder for you and I to live in the midst of all of this. And I hope it's not because we're judgmental of other people.
is because we've seen our culture decay and degrade. Because it seems as though the evil one is having his way in our time. Very often we think, boy, I wish it could just return back to the way it was when I was a kid. Well, let me tell you, there were some things that were really wrong when you were a kid, when you guys were kids and I was a kid. Not that it was a perfect world. But there was a sense in which generally people understood a difference between right and wrong. Can you believe in this nation today that it is legal to abort a baby the day before it would be born naturally? If that doesn't crush your spirit, does not pierce your soul, then I don't know what possibly could. Can you imagine? Did you ever believe in your lifetime such a thing would happen here? What are you going to do? You're just going to learn to live with it? There's nothing much I can do about it. Just remember, God does great things with little insignificant people all the time. You know what, guys? It really is easy to do this, and I'm as guilty as everybody else, and that is to kind of brush aside things, compartmentalize your own little world, and, 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 and you know, things here are one way and whatever. And you know, that's going on out there, but there's not much you can do about it, and so on and so on. See, this is the problem. I've got to stop. It's because I want to do something, and I can't. I can't sit down and have a conversation with that young man. My hands were tied. Because the culture out there has tied them. And there's a part of me that says, don't be a quitter. Because you need to understand something, and that is a lot of these young people don't have any kind of a positive adult influence. And I'm talking about a large percentage of them. So you and I look about, out on things and we think maybe things are almost at the point of being hopeless at this point. But let me just tell you this. You may not realize this, but the, but the pro-life movement is growing among young people today in a way that it never has. That right now, the, the, the younger generation is the mo- more, most pro-life generation that has been around in a very long time.
I'm so thankful for Carol. I, I'm assuming you're still counseling at the pregnancy center. And Everness, she's doing it. She's been doing it now for years. Other women in this room that have been involved in pregnancy centers, counseling and that sort of thing. Lori did it for a time when we were in Crystal River. Let me tell you something else that makes me want to cry. Is years ago, when we had the life chain, there would be a lot of people in Dunellen standing out there, praying, quietly protesting. And today in Dunellen, it's a handful of people. That something as little as that is too much to ask of people. To spend one hour a year actively praying and protesting quietly, gently, not ram it, cram it down your throat. For people who cannot speak for themselves. You know, it would be easy almost to conclude in some ways that it seems as though the devil is having his way in the world today. But let me tell you, it's all appearance. One of, the, one of the greatest mysteries to us ought to be this, and that is where did evil come from? We know that God's not evil, but evil entered into the picture, and if God's almighty and all-powerful and whatever, how was it that that happened? Because I hope no one in this room is ready to call God the author of evil. But there's some things that we have to acknowledge, and one of those certainly is this, is that God at least allowed it to happen. We don't understand the mind of God. He has his reasons. He has his purposes that are mysteries to us. Now we do know this, that it's only for a time. That when Jesus comes back, judgment's coming. And the only difference between people on that day is going to be this, whether they have the mark of the beast upon them or they have the seal of God on them. That's it. Sheep and goats. Good fish and bad fish. Laura and I were talking the other day about someone that we know and we love, and, 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 but the thing about it is we knew them for a long time. They were Christians, and they continually, constantly brought attention to the fact that they were, uh, they actually were, was a, this person is a good person. Professes to be a good person all the time. It's hard to imagine a Christian being in that position. 
what it tells me is this person has not really gotten into the dirt and depth of their sin. In a sense, they believe that when Jesus got them, he got a good deal. Because after all, they're better than other people. It's very easy to fall into that trap of believing that God shows you because you're better. My friends, that is not the gospel at all. He chose you when you did not deserve to be chosen at all. There was not one itsy-bitsy, teeny-tiny thing about you that forced God's hand. Do you understand that if you have that perspective on things, you believe that at least to some degree and in some way you saved yourself? That God maybe did 99% of it, but you did the 1%. Let me tell you guys, that gospel is foreign from Scripture. What the Scriptures teach us is this, is that you are saved 100%, absolutely, totally, by God's grace granted to you freely. Just simply because he chose to show you grace. And by the works and the life of Jesus Christ done and accomplished on your behalf. To endure on the cross this hell for you that we have studied in Revelation. You don't have to go through it because he went through it on your behalf. And that's the only reason. Because he did it in your stead. He took your place. He endured the holy wrath of God. God is very serious about sin. He's very serious about judgment. But you know what? He's also very serious about unconditional love. And about grace. Hallelujah. If not for that, hell would be crammed full of people and not anybody would be in heaven. Nobody. Just God and the angels. But a great multitude from all the nations. You understand that this this picture of all these, this is antithesis. Of the church. It's like in the book of Revelation. Everything God comes up with. Satan comes up with something that that mimics it. But in the same time it mocks it. 
Thank God. Thank God for the gospel of grace. Preach it to yourself. Every day. Every minute. It's the only thing that will transform your life. And it will transform your life.